This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Craig Sylvie, welcome to Better Reading. Cheryl, thank you so much for having me. Ah, uh, and live in the studio at Better Reading. We're back. Yeah, yeah. we're back. <laughs> Let's hope it stays that way. Craig is a WA-based award-winning and best-selling author of three novels, Rhubarb, Jasper Jones and Honey Bee. Jasper Jones is considered a modern Australian classic, while Honey Bee won Best Fiction at the Indie Book Awards in 21, Dimmick's Book of the Year in 20, and was also voted number one at Better Reading's Top 100. That just, I can't tell you how happy that made me. Oh, likewise. What an extraordinary honour. Yeah. Um, And what a beautiful vote of confidence for the book, for, for your... Uh, subscriber list and your and your readers. Yeah. I was I felt very blessed. Do you know I've always loved and trusted the readers. You know because you know I think Trent Dalton said this that readers have a terrific amount of empathy and I think they do. And for a book like Honey Bee to come in at number one in all the books that they've been reading is it just made me so happy. Oh, it's, it's extraordinary. I feel very grateful mm. and very fortunate. Mm. And Trent's right. Yeah. Uh, reading is a profound act of empathy. Mm. Mm. Um, When we open a novel and breathe life into it, we are abandoning our own identities and we're inhabiting any number of others and Mm. we're inviting their stories to occupy us and we live them um, and it can't help but change and enrich us. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and, And honestly, in the comments even to this day, you know, people talk about Jasper Jones and they talk about um, Honeybee and I, I love that. I, I love how your stories really hit the heart, which is why you're here. You've got a new book. It's called Runt and it's a heartwarming, funny, beautifully told story for readers of all ages about one woman's very special bond with her adopted stray dog who's called Runt. I mean, I, I'm sure you know this, that I'm a lover of dogs. I had a Runt, George who died a few years ago, and I found George online because he couldn't be shown. He wasn't a show dog. Right. Yeah. And that attracted me to him so much (laughs) because I don't feel that I can be shown. So I thought (laughs) we have that in common, right? And then I've got another dog called John Brown who is – he could be shown and thinks, you know, he knows that he can be shown. And I called him after John Brown Rose and the Midnight Cat. Oh, beautiful. Do you know, there is something about readers, but there's also something about dog owners, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They're an impassioned group. Mm. Um, I'm sorry to say that I'm not among uh, the cohort of dog owners. I wish I was. Well, you can tell that you wish you were. I'm clearly overcompensating <laughs> in my fiction. Yeah, yeah. you're right. You're yeah. right. Do you I, do dog minding? 
rarely. Rarely. Uh, oh, my mother has a dog called Millie, who is yeah. a Legato Romagnolo, an Italian truffle dog. Oh, wow. Um, who is uh, <laughs> riddled with anxieties and, you know, uh, very much her own person. Yeah. Um, but we adore her. She's, yeah. she's wonderful. So I get to spend a lot of time with her. Do you know, I, don't, I would have thought you had a dog from reading it because I feel as though you captured the the... the I don't know, the personality, the, you know, who and what dogs are. But I, you've probably been around them enough to know. I have throughout my life. Yes. Absolutely. I gravitate towards them. I yeah. love dogs. Yeah. I think dogs have a lot to teach us about being good humans. Mm. You know, they're spontaneous. Yeah. They're present. Mm. They're loyal. They're non-judgmental. Mm. They're loving. They're kind. Mm. And they they're live silly. in the moment. They live in the moment. I think, you know, we said before we started recording, John Brown is 16 and I don't know when it was, maybe six months ago, he woke up and I noticed he couldn't see, he was hitting furniture and then I noticed he couldn't hear and that's all I noticed. He still is has got a real passion for life. And it made me think about humans. What would happen if we woke up and couldn't hear and couldn't see? My goodness, yeah. Mm. Oh, poor John Brown. But mm. it sounds like he's a resilient Well, chap. he's 16. Yeah. It's going to happen, right? Yeah. I also like relationships between dogs and, and uh, their owners, mm. which is what Runt's about. Because I, I think I said that I um, named John Brown after John Brown Rose and the Midnight Cat. And that, I don't know if you're familiar with it, is just such a beautiful short story of uh, grief. It's beautiful. Like mm. Rose is upset and, you know, she has a dog and then the cat comes to befriend them and it's how they deal with that. Storytelling is amazing, I, I think, when it comes, particularly when it comes to picture books. But Runt isn't a picture book, but it's also a beautiful story told in a way that I feel um, reminds me of the old style of storytelling. Oh, like I'm really a Morris Sendak kind of story. Oh, what a beautiful thing to say. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, Do you I, remember the little bear stories? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's that. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you say that. Mm. You know, I wanted it to have uh, a timeless classic feel, but mm. with contemporaneous themes and, and characters, you know. Mm. We're swept away into the world of ups and downs and our narrative voice is, you know, I think informed by the books that I loved at that age. You know, I adore E.B. White and mm. Charlotte's Web was a <gasps> huge book for me. Uh, I did a lot of crying. Oh, my goodness, yeah. 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 I mean, Run- Runt is vastly more joyful and uplifting, I suppose, <laughs> yes. than, than Charlotte's Web. But Charlotte's Web is also quite a positive story and a, a beautiful meditation mm. on death. Mm. Um, but his writing is extraordinary. Mm. I learned, I've learned a lot from reading him closely over the years. But also uh, Roald Dahl. Um, his cheekiness, mm. the high-minded judgment that went into a lot of his uh, writing. You know, I delighted in the opportunity to present that in the text. You know, there's a there's a few chances for our narrator in Runt to, to go on a bit of a tear mm. um, in the nicest possible way. Mm. Um, you know, so it was really a, a love letter to all those books that I adored as a kid. Yeah, I was going to talk about where it came from because it's very different to your three um, other novels. So when did you finish? When was Honeybee published? Honeybee was published uh, at the tail end of 2020. Right, okay. And had you been writing Runt or was that – tell me where the seed of the idea came from and when you sat down to start writing it. Yeah. And, And also how did you feel about writing something so different? Well, the nucleus of the story had been in my back pocket for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just that, that early kernel of an idea which felt 
laden with potential, uh, but I didn't have the opportunity to quite work on it yet. Mm. Um, you know, I'd nibble on it every now and then and, and put it away. And then a couple of things happened. One was that I finished the final edits to Honey Bee and I found myself with a clean creative slate for the first time in years, mm. but also emotionally drained and wrung out mm. and in need of a creative pursuit that felt very different. Mm. And at the same time, the pandemic was uh, was in full fledge, and we found ourselves isolated, locked in, anxious, mm. uncertain, um, and facing economic pressures as well. Mm. And so, it's such a scary time. It was a scary time, mm. um, and so it seemed like a, a very natural fit for me to reach into the bottom drawer and spend my days in the very admirable company of Annie Shearer and Runt and her adorable family and the good people of Ups and Downs. And I'm so glad that I did. Mm. Um, It was a joyful, uplifting, comforting book to write. I really look forward to sitting down at the desk of a day and building that world and expanding on it. Mm. Uh, So I, I essentially wrote it that year of 2020 Mm. um, when we were all locked away. And I think I was, I have to say, upon reflection, I was inspired by the way that collectively we responded to the pandemic Mm. by making sacrifices Mm. to protect those most vulnerable among us. Mm. And I think it bled into the text. You know, it's, there's not a lot of conflict between the family members, particularly in Runt. Mm. Everybody um, it's working towards a common aspiration mm. and doing it their own way. Um, but it's very much a team effort. And, you know, I, I, I found that really infectious and, and really lovely. I was alone um, during lockdown, which I found, oh, gosh, so tough. You don't live alone unless you're in lockdown, you know, if you know what I mean. You know, so many families around me. And outside of homeschooling, which I think a lot of the families found challenging, there was a lot of appreciation for being at home with your children and eating together. And I, I did hear some wonderful stories about that and reconnecting with family. Yeah, amidst mm. it all, there were some really positive mm. outcomes mm. Um, mm. That, that came out of, I suppose, simplifying mm. um, and narrowing the focus of mm. our lives mm. um, and, you know, delighting in the opportunity mm. to um, spend that spend that time together mm. and and you know we we see um the outcomes of that now in terms of the way that we're recalibrating the way that we look at working mm-hmm. we're not negotiating salaries so much now as we're negotiating how many hours we're going to spend at the office mm. because we found so much value in being there and being present in the lives of our families and mm. um and like, being present in the lives of us yeah, you know like yes. doing things like not having to work 5 days a week you know that's right I, I don't think we'll ever go back to that like 5 days in an office i don't think we'll go back to that because once you know you know that's right <laughs> don't you that's think? Right. i think you're right yeah yeah hey i want to talk and this is you know this is just an idea i had when i was reading Runt, comparing cuz I, I tend to read mainly um adult fiction um we've got other readers of children's books in the office But I thought, and this could be wrong, but I thought there is, like people say when they're writing for kids that you've got to remember that, you know, who your audience is, you know, people always want to put an age bracket around it. People always want to, you know, make sure it's, uh, I don't know, um, politically correct and whatever. But in a way, I felt that it also gives you great scope to be crazy imaginative. 
Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's, there's, there's much more than adult fiction. It's certainly gave me the opportunity to you know explore different characterizations. There are a couple of really wonderful, complex baddies uh, in Runt. And so there was leeway there to really exaggerate their gestures and and have a lot of fun with it. Mm. Um, I have to say that I really feel like Runt is for everyone. I think it's a book that we can share um, with the whole family. Mm. And, and delight. It's a in beautiful it read, read aloud to book. I think so too. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and we love being read aloud too. Oh, my favourite thing ever. Yeah, yeah. I think the proliferation of audiobooks in recent times has reminded us absolutely of, uh, the joy in that. Yeah. Um, and so I love the idea of of parents um, and siblings huddling together, you know, at story time at night and, and sharing runt. Mm. Um, I had a great emphasis, I suppose, in providing points of entry for readers of different ages and degrees of sophistication. It is mm-hmm. ostensibly for middle grade readers, there's no question. Mm-hmm. And we follow the journey of, of Annie uh, and Runt. But there are narrative threads and and, um, and and characters that older readers are going to be able to identify with in a way that maybe younger readers won't, mm-hmm. um, which I think is an important approach to, mm-hmm. to children's fiction. Mm-hmm. I think it could be cheeky more cheeky as a writer than you can in adult, really. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the opportunity presented itself, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's a whimsical, yep. uh, funny, uh, harebrained story at yeah. that time. It's full of eccentricity and wonder and magic. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it provided me a really rich platform to, to go a bit crazy um, mm. and be really inventive and imaginative and, mm. you know, younger readers particularly – require that. It's mm. part, one of the key ingredients to, to, to writing for them. But I don't think we ever lose that urge. Oh, and I think t- definitely post-COVID, we're looking for comfort all of the time because I don't think any of us have found our post-COVID feet yet, you know. I don't know. I feel as though I'm always looking for a good story mm. and I'm lucky enough to find it and definitely find it in Runt. Um, I want to go back to, and I'm sure we've spoken about this, but tell me about your entree into writing. Like when was it that you decided you were going to be a writer? Well, you know, I always adored reading, mm. um, and I'm sure every novelist is the same. It, it begins with a love of stories. Mm. Um, and then there's a moment, I suppose, where it certainly was for me as a younger person where I realised that I could divine my own lies, mm. I could make up my own stories, <laughs> yeah. and I could give them to other people for them to, to go on a journey that I had invented. It was an intoxicating thought. And so I wrote stories relentlessly and, you know, gave what, them... throughout school? Yeah, as, as a younger person. Yeah. You know, I, I think my first ever breakthrough was uh, I entered the, the West Australian Young Writers Competition. I think I was yeah. about eight. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a, a harrowing memoir piece uh, about one... <laughs> One young boy's brave struggle with tonsillitis. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a big story oh, at eight. I mean, oh. huge, yeah. <laughs> huge. It was, you know, and it was a it was a funny, whimsical little story. Uh, I was, you know, I was a tiny little David Sedaris, really. Mm. It was all very heightened and and overblown and exaggerated. Uh, but I and things haven't changed. You're right, exactly. <laughs> Look at me now. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm as unbearable as ever. Um, but I finished third. And it earned me twenty dollars. Oh wow! Critical acclaim. That's a lot of money. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, certainly more than I've earned since then. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, and a round of applause. And yeah. from that moment, I was I was hooked. You yeah, know, yeah. but it wasn't until I was in my mid-teens when a novelist visited my school. His name is Glenn Parry. Yeah, and it was for the first time I had been in the same room in the company mm-hmm. of a novelist. And up until that point, they'd always been distant deities to me, these far-off mm. figures, these creators. And it was really clarifying for me to see somebody who had a vocation um, that I admired so much. Mm. And at that moment, I knew who I was. And I resolved then and there that, that I was going to become a writer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, That's a big – it's a big step for a guy in high school to think about that because, you know, and I'm not stereotyping here, but, you know, um, young men are usually reluctant readers and to maybe announce or even tell someone that you're going to be a writer at that age might have been a tough – Oh, I, d- I didn't tell anyone. No. It was very it internal. Yeah, it was it was a secret that I nursed, you know, up until the point where I, I got a publishing deal. Nobody knew. Oh, did you keep it secret that long? I did, yeah. yeah so wow. when I was 14, you know, and resolved to, to mm. write, you know, I went home, I, I saved up um, and, and bought a computer in order to, to, to write a manuscript. Um, I worked countless hours at the orchard that I lived on. We didn't have a lot. We lived in a shed. Mm. For my 14th birthday, I asked for and I received a door so I could close it uh, <laughs> and uh, have some privacy. Which... I thought you were going to say typewriter. No, no. no but as you might imagine, for a 14-year-old boy, a, yeah, a door and some privacy important. is quite necessary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but instead, I was spending a lot of time writing a novel and um, and I completed it. It was awful. Yeah. But um, I sent it alongside a really impassioned letter to Glynn, the writer who had come to my school. Oh, wow. And I waited for him uh, to, to respond. You know, in that letter, I declared my, my passion for words and stories and told him that I wanted to become a writer. And after a few months of visiting the Dwelling Up post office every day and, mm-hmm. and leaving Crestfallen, mm-hmm. there was a letter for me and it was from Glynn. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. It remains one of the most treasured artifacts of my life because he took me seriously and he didn't lie to me about what was in store for me. What did he say? He said that uh, I'd made a scary, beautiful decision. Scary because the life of a writer is the hardest life there is, Mm. but beautiful because it's also the most rewarding. But he also gave me a piece of advice which has always stayed with me, which was to say, don't become a writer, be a writer. And he's right. It's all about practicing the craft and developing your voice and doing the work and sitting there and letting a story come to you. And that's what being a writer is all about. There's, there's no glamour to it. It's all about work and perspiration and dedication and stubbornness. Mm. Um, and it was a good lesson for me to learn early. Mm. And so I resolved with his encouragement to, to write. And I didn't go to university. I left uh, the orchard and the shed with the door closed the behind door me. Closed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I moved to Fremantle and, you know, I worked every shitty job that would have me. I worked mm. at a hardware store. I cleaned toilets. Uh, mm. I pulled beers. I made coffees. I cleaned cafes. I did everything I could to fund the time to write. And it took me three years to serve my apprenticeship and write my first novel, Rhubarb. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And once I got a publishing deal, that's when I, mm. well, I had to be a bit more public about my aspirations. That's when I discovered you with Rhubarb. It was, was that published by Fremantle? Mm. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, who is this person? You know, so such a beautiful story. How did you, how did you get it to them? I mean, how did you get published? Well, I have Glenn to thank for that also. You wow. know, I was in the wilderness for a couple of years, Cheryl. I was receiving rejection slips mm. um, with regularity. They were very kind, mm. um, but they just felt there wasn't a market for us and, mm. um, you know, I couldn't quite get over the line until Glenn invited me to an industry event mm-hmm. and he introduced me to Ray Coffey, who then was the senior editor at, at Fremantle Press. And he said, Ray, you need to read this guy's manuscript. He's the next Tim Winton. Oh, wow. And I sent it across to Ray and... Uh, it was a Saturday, and by Monday I'd been offered a contract. So it oh, changed wow. my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a beautiful story. It's lovely. It's lovely. I love the stories about the kindness of others, and I say that a lot in um, in writers mm. being kind to each other. I do say that quite a lot. It's very collegial and yeah. very supportive, and yeah. you know, it is true that the rising tide lifts all boats. And mm. you know, I think we're all in this together, and I think. And you're implicated too. You do such mm. amazing work advocating for Australian books mm. and stories. Mm. Um, and, you know, we all collectively owe you the world. Oh, it's, gosh. Um, Thank you. Do well, you it's, know? it's the truth. The more people believe mm. in our stories, mm. um, uh, the better it is for our industry. I, I think I was telling you this earlier. I did this interview. Somebody interviewed me yesterday for a writers' festival in Tasmania. And she asked me, why, why did I choose this profession, but I didn't choose it. I feel as though it chose me, you know. I actually thought I was going to be a teacher and then I realised I didn't like children at all. (laughs) Um, But what I was liking was reading picture books. I like that a lot. And they have been very, very formative because when I started school, I couldn't speak or read English because my parents were Lebanese. And so picture books were so important for somebody course, like me. yeah. Yeah, and they've had a huge impact on my life. I, I still um, enjoy them very much now. But, you know, get, getting back to this, what I said yesterday, you can't 
and it's the same as being a writer. You can't do this if you don't like it. Like, you know, at one point in my career, I was the book buyer for Maya. Um, and it was a great job. But then, you know, cost cutting came and this and that. And then they wanted me to buy the cards and then they wanted me to buy gift wrap. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. That's that's not where who I am. Mm. I understand that that's how this organisation works mm. and they were great to me. But time for me to move on because... Mm. It's not, I couldn't have done this for shoes, for example, you know. Yeah. It's about loving story. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's that's really important to me. I feel very privileged in hearing people's stories. Like I feel, you know, even talking to you today that I can't, I'm kind of the caretaker of that story that, you know, of how you came to write and making sure that people hear it and people listen. Because as you know, it's like, the, you know, it was a Perry that came and, uh, changed your life. Somebody can be listening to this podcast, an aspiring writer, and you can change theirs, you know. Yeah. We have a, a responsibility, don't we? That's a lovely way to look at it, mm. I think. And I'm a big believer in demystifying mm. aspects of, of the mm. job and, and being honest about it too. Mm. I'm particularly passionate about bringing stories and perspectives to the regions. You know, mm. I grew up in the country mm. and often we miss out out mm. there. I you think do. it's why I like setting yeah. stories um, regionally, mm. but also traveling out there. We have such a tremendous reading culture mm. um, out in the regions and savvy mm. and sophisticated readers out there, mm. you know, um, and I think they deserve... See, that's another thing too. People try and pigeonhole readers. It's a bit like children's books, I think, sometimes, you know, like people say to me, yes, but tell me what your readers like. Well, there's 500,000 of them yeah. to start with and also... Readers read a lot of everything. Yeah. They, they might be romance readers, but at the same time, they could still be reading, you know, Craig Sylvie or, you know, Ian McEwan. They don't, they, real readers don't just stick to one genre. Yeah. We just love books. Yeah. And, love know, story. I don't think one genre or mode of storytelling needs yeah. to be promoted over, over any other. Mm. You know, every, every, every genre, every style of writing has, has merit, mm. um, particularly since. Um, we absorb them so personally. Mm. A story that might resonate for you might not resonate for me. Mm. You know, we ascribe to them the authority of our imaginations and our histories and our souls mm. um, and in doing so that we make them our own. Mm. And, you know, you can never anticipate what story might ignite some identification within us. Mm. You know, it's about being open to it. I really like that. I like you saying that. It's so true. When you read a story, it's so personal, isn't it? It is. We build them ourselves. Mm. You know, it's really, it's, it's so different to any other art form, Mm. like watching a film or listening to music. It's quite passive. It Mm. happens to us. Mm. And everybody kind of hears and sees the same thing. That's right. There's there's beauty in the fact that it's communal, but I think there's something really unique and special and beautiful about the fact that stories live intrinsically inside us. Mm. There's no other art form like it. Mm. Um, and we build them our own and we feel as though uh, we own them. There's a proprietary ownership over the stories that we read mm. to the extent where readers will argue with me about what my books are about. And they've earned that right. They spent hours with these characters. They go on a journey with them. And I think that very personal response is to be respected. Mm. Okay, so you get uh, Rhubarb published. Then, so what's the cycle for you? Because it's not like you're writing, you know, one book a year. Mm. Um, Do you then, did you have Jasper Jones on your mind then or do you have to start with a clean slate all the time? 
Do you tell me that process? Typically, I have a clean slate. I mean, uh, I toured rhubarb for a couple of years. Yeah, wow. um, I had a great opportunity to mm. hit the road and and speak with people, and um, it was really well supported. And it was mm. a bit of a word of mouth book, mm. you know, as small press debuts often are. Mm. You know, if they hit, they tend to hit mm. slowly. Mm. And so I spent a couple of years um, talking about it and learning how to be a writer, really. And then I spent a couple of years sort of enmeshed in a manuscript that didn't quite work. Um, I worked really hard on it. I really believed in it. But at, at a certain point, I had to admit that I was losing it and I had to let it go. Wow, that's hard. Yeah, it's a difficult breakup. Mm. Uh, but fortunately, at the same time, I, I suppose the, um, the catalyst for that final decision to put it aside was the the sort of opening scenes of Jasper Jones, which had occurred to me and I found them really infectious and I found it just felt right. I had to chase this story and I had to try and bottle that lightning and go on that journey. And that was around 2006, 2007. Uh, and it took me it took me a couple of years to write that book and uh, I certainly don't regret that decision. It changed Amazing. my life. Well, um, it changed a lot of readers' lives as well. I remember putting it down just thinking... I don't think I'll ever see things the same again. Oh, it's a beautiful thing to say. I mean, there's, mm. there's, there's um, nothing more that a novelist mm. could possibly ask for than that mm. kind of response to a book. Mm. Do you know, I know it's often compared to class. Well, it is an Australian classic now, uh, Jasper Jones, and it is on school lists right throughout the country. It, it's, it's not like To Kill a Mockingbird, but it does give me those vibes, right? The Harper Lee, To Kill, to kill a Mockingbird. And very recently, I thought about Jasper Jones because, and I haven't read it for a while, I read it again for a while, because I do tend to go back to books I love, uh, but I saw uh, To Kill a Mockingbird um, on stage in London recently, mm. um, and the screenplay was Aaron Sorkin, I wrote the screenplay, and I wasn't sure, I'd heard it was fantastic, but I wasn't sure how to approach it because it is a book I loved and the film I loved equally. But do you know that Aaron Sorkin, he took a sledgehammer to that book. Oh, really? But in the most positive way. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. I yeah. was a bit worried. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's positive. He took, and this is, and I'm raising this with you because as a writer, and I'm sure if Harper Lee had seen it, was still around and seen it, she would have loved it. And what I mean that he took a sledgehammer to that book is he, all the messages he went harder on, mm. you know, all the people that maybe weren't heard in the book, he brought to the forefront. Oh, wonderful. You know, and... I feel that it worked. It was respect for the title because of its longevity. Yeah. Like it was this, it, it, you know, it's been around for so long and this is this version yeah. of that story now because it is a story that resonates. And I think that could happen with Jasper Jones. Well, it's also an indication of what adaptation can bring to a story. Yes. So... You know, we need to remember that, that To Kill a Mockingbird is told through a very specific lens, and mm. that's through Scout. Yes. Um, and it's quite a naive perspective mm -hmm. at times, but obviously that's what gives the book its magic. Mm. The opportunity to bring a story like that to the stage gives other characters uh, an opportunity to be more resonant. Mm. They're not told via the lens of this child. Mm. They have an opportunity to speak for themselves mm. um, and to 
infiltrate and adapt uh, and be a part of the story uh, in a way that uh, Harper Lee wasn't able to negotiate. That's right. Because, I mean, I think fiction has its limitations and then it's done and it's printed and it's yeah. gone. And that's why I'm referring to Jasper Jones. Like, would you, I mean, it, it's been brought to the stage, hasn't mm. it? Mm. And that that happens that then you can change it and you can think, oh, I actually, I think that character has more to say or that character shouldn't be able yeah. to have the stage for so long. Well, that structure has its limitations, certainly. And so the opportunity to... Yes. To, well... It's not just the other characters who have the opportunity to to speak for themselves and um, speak in a way that's uh, unburdened by uh, someone else's perspective. It's bringing other people into a collaborative process Mm. that ignites a story and expands it in a way that a single creator isn't often able to do. Mm. And, you know, one of the great joys of my career thus far, and I've been very, very fortunate over the past 20 years, um, is to see the stage production of Jasper mm. Jones mm. Um, brought to life by five different major companies mm. in Australia, all adhering to Kate Mulvaney's masterful uh, stage play. Mm. Uh, and they're all different. Mm. They're all vastly different from their design to uh, uh, the direction to what resonates on any given night. Um, and it has been just the most rewarding part of my life to be able to experience that story like any other audience member, Mm. to divorce myself from Mm. having written it Mm. uh, and to sit there and and let it wash over me. Mm. Uh, It it has been so moving Mm. um, and and so incredible uh, that it, it, and it's redefined the story. You know, it's like for me, To Kill a Mockingbird for me was always the book and the and the, the the film, and then this, you know, to hear other voices and to be as familiar with the characters and for the book to be such a classic that you can understand that they would be behaving differently mm. is extraordinary. And I think that's where Jasper Jones is. You know, the fact that we know those people so well now, they could be doing other things. I find that extraordinary. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, it's also the great benefit of bringing diverse voices mm. um, into a collaborative atmosphere. Mm. Having the iconic Rachel Perkins lend her voice mm. uh, and her strength and her perspective to the film adaptation just mm. elevated the story in, in ways that redefined it for me, certainly. Mm. I'm going to see... Um looking for Ella Brandy on stage shortly. That'll be my first time. That I, I don't know if it's been adapted before, but anyway, I'm going. Oh, that'll be beautiful. That will be beautiful because that too was, you know, like Jasper Jones, it was a defining moment in my life mm. reading that book. Yeah. Particularly for a Lebanese Australian for me. Yeah, a really... lot of people from, from um, migrant mm. backgrounds mm. found a lot of solace and comfort mm. uh, and identification within those stories, mm. yeah, mm. within that book particularly. Mm. Um, we definitely we've gone over and we're a little bit <laughs> over time, but that's okay. <laughs> I just want to talk about Honeybee, and I don't want to say the success of it because that that's not giving it the justice it needs. That the fact that you, the story wasn't an easy story, right? And we'll all agree to that. And yet, I feel that people embraced it and read it, and you gave an. Yes, readers are empathy, but your storytelling was so empathetic that people read it in droves. Now, I know that's not the right language, but you know what I mean. Like, 
we here at Better Reading, people have not stopped talking about it. And that's how it became number one in the mm. top 100. Those readers are still reading it and still loving it. How does how does that make you feel? Oh, it's deeply rewarding. Mm. It, you know, it's everything that I hoped for that book and mm. more. The fact that it sparked a conversation. Yes. The fact that it's meant mm. uh, something to, to its readers. For those who are in the trans and gender diverse community and beyond, mm. that it has inspired a deeper and more knowledgeable allyship mm. within um, our broader cisgender community, um, but also that it's brought comfort and courage to trans and gender diverse readers. Mm. Um, that's been a really beautiful outcome. Oh, it's a gorgeous outcome. And again, you know, when people ask me about what, oh, you know, do, do your readers just like reading commercial fiction? No. They read everything. Mm. They love good story mm. and they embrace that story like you've never seen. And I'm deeply grateful mm. for it, you know. Mm. I think a lot of it has to do with Sam's voice. Mm. It's very unguarded. Mm. It's quite naive at times, but it's raw. Mm. She brings us into her world. It's like reading her diary. It's mm. really intimate. Mm. And, you know, she has layers of protection in in this book, she lies to other characters. Um, you know, she's cautious with her mm. truth and her disclosure as a trans person mm. um, for reasons that are readily understood. However, she never, ever lies to us, the reader, the audience. Mm. We feel as though we can intimately trust her. She's a very reliable narrator. And in that sense, I think we really cheer her on. We're really side by side with her. Um, and uh, and wishing her the best. Mm. Uh, I certainly felt that when I was when I was you writing. You are a master storyteller, Craig. Oh, Simply. thank you. You Cheryl. really are. <laughs> hey, look, we've got to finish up. Runt is the new book. Can I just say this? I, this is audio, but it the book is beautiful. It's hardcover. It's got a gorgeous dust jacket. It's got a beautiful illustration by Sarah Acton on the front. Can I just say it is the perfect gift as well as the perfect <laughs> you read? You can say that, yes. Can I? It is beautiful. We don't make books like this much anymore. No, we don't. And I wanted it to have that classic, mm, uh, beloved, uh, you know, family mm. book feel. Mm. Uh, I can't stop touching it. Mm. I love it. Yeah, um, no, it's beautiful. You know, when I was growing up dreaming of being a writer, this is the book that I mm. I'd always hoped that I'd be able to write and it's gorgeous. And Sarah's illustrations throughout gorgeous. are just perfect. Mm. They're just, they just elevate the book and bring it to life. I, I love it to bits. Mm. Craig Sylvie, it's always such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.